We're in a series that has us located in the upper room. We're on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus has been meeting with his disciples and much has already happened on this night. Feet have been washed. Judas has left. Peter has been revealed as one who will deny and it is clear that all of the disciples will scatter following the death of Jesus in coming hours. But Jesus lovingly has met in this upper room and is having a conversation with his disciples and leading them in things that would be helpful for them to know. He's telling them many things beforehand. And last week, as we began in chapter 14, we had a terrible image as we began. It was the image of a flock of sheep and a shepherd and an ancient piece of farming wisdom. You'll remember that if you strike the shepherd, kill the shepherd, the sheep scatter. And we discovered, to our surprise, that Jesus anticipates that the shepherd will be struck down, but he doesn't think that the sheep should scatter. In fact, because the good shepherd is laying down his life for the sheep, they ought to continue to hold fast to him. And in fact, in him going to death and rising again and going to the Father, in fact, is good because he will send the Spirit and they will not be left as orphans. Strike this shepherd down and the sheep are to abide, they are to remain. It starts as a terrible image but we discover there's something beautiful in it. But what about this week if we began with a more serene picture and we pictured a sheep, again, or a little lamb this time perhaps. So, veal, but not veal because it's alive and it's, it's lovely and it's cute and it's And its name's Keith, once again, perhaps. I don't know what its name is. It doesn't particularly matter. But there it is, and you picture that scene, and it is so serene, and then you introduce another animal into that scene. Lex. Lex is a wolf. Of course it's a wolf. And what do you anticipate into that scene? It's a serene and peaceful scene. Because here you see this lamb curled up and nuzzled in next to the wolf. It's such a beautiful picture, isn't it? There's There's a lamb... And there's a wolf and they're living side by side in harmony together. They share a flat, they sit around, they watch the same things. They never fight over what's on Netflix. They're very happy and at peace, both Lex and Keith. When they ask each other what you want for dinner, Lex never says, I feel like lamb tonight. Never happens because there's the lamb and the wolf. They live together and it's in perfect harmony. It's a picture of great serenity. But of course, to our ears, it comes as a shock, doesn't it? Because if you were actually to put a lamb into some scene. As serene as the lamb looks, it has nothing really defensive about it. Oh, it might have some horns, but hardly of little account. There's no fangs in Keith's mouth. He's not carnivorous, but they're the wolf. The wolf is. I did the mistake this week of googling lamb versus wolf. Image search in Google. Don't do it horrendous. The brutality of a wolf on the defenselessness of a lamb, just tearing out at their sides or ripping across their face. What you're more likely to see is Keith's leg drooping out of Lex's mouth and he was thrashing back and he's just satiated with all the meat and all the blood. That's what you expect, isn't it? It's a scene of violence. It's an atrocity when you put a wolf next to a, a lamb. And yet, 
hundreds of years before Jesus spends time with his disciples, God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks of one who will come one day and establish a future of great reversals so that things that are at war are together and are at peace. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6. The wolf will lie down, sorry, the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat and a calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them and the cow will feed with the bear and their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the infant will play at the cobra's den and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a looking forward to and a longing of uh, an incredible picture of perfect peace. That, that image there, along with many others in the Old Testament scriptures, picks up the idea of shalom. And in the Israelite mind, it was the chief pursuit that you might find great shalom, great peace. In fact, shalom, shalom, perfect peace. And so on this night, in that upper room, Jesus turns his attention to the topic of peace. And he speaks about the fact that he, that this lamb that is about to be sacrificed, has peace. And I wonder, as we come to think about things tonight, have, have you got peace tonight or this week? Or Are you unruffled, unflappable? Have you found peace like this? Well, we're going to explore that theme together because... What we discover as we continue to move through John's gospel is that Jesus wants his followers to know that with his going and the coming of the Spirit is the establishment of that perfect kind of peace. In fact, it's incredible to think about it, isn't it? That on that night, the Lamb of God who is about to be slain has such peace within him. How could he not be transfixed by the fate that awaits him? How is he not terrified? And yet he speaks in verse 27 of having a peace that he is able to give. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Elsewhere, when you turn to the book of Hebrews, the writer there talks about this time in Jesus' life, prior to his death. And it says, you look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the throne of God. And that just seems like an incredible passage, doesn't it? Here is the one, the founder, the author and perfecter of our faith, this one who is Jesus, who for the joy that's set before him, goes through the cross and you say, well, what's the joy? And what you discover, the writer of Hebrews news is exact, knows, is exactly what Jesus knew this night. It's the joy of Jesus being reunited to his Father, having demonstrated his obedience to the mission that God has left him. 
that he will be soon enough seated at the right hand of God. Oh yes, the cross will come. He will endure the cross, despising the shame. But he knows that he will be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that is the joy that's set before him. And what you discover, Jesus revealing in the passages like that, and here in John chapter 14, is that the proximity of God the Son to God the Father is all caught up in his experience of joy or peace. It's a peace that has the capacity to look beyond his present circumstance, a crucifixion that awaits, to God's ultimate purposes. He's not distracted by his world around him or the experiences right in front of him. And Jesus invites his disciples to see the world the way that he does. That we might see the big picture and not get lost in those smaller things. That our cares and our worries and anxieties in this life might be lessened because our focus is on God and his ultimate purposes. Because what Jesus knows is that at the heart of humanity is this desire for peace, that we seek it all the time. We don't want to be troubled. We don't want to be in conflict or conflicted. That's a great problem. And Jesus says, well, the premise and the remedy is to realise that if you want to find peace, don't think you'll be able to manufacture it yourself. Don't think that the world could supply it. In fact, lasting peace, says Jesus, is found in one place. It's the peace that he gives. So verse 27 again, peace I'll leave with you. My peace I will give you. And the objective tonight really is to see whether or not that's true, isn't it? That lasting peace actually can only be found in that one place, in Jesus Christ. And Jesus has actually got several things that he wants his disciples to know as he leaves them. And so in this little passage, we're going to explore this, uh, those thoughts uh, together tonight. And one of the first things he makes very clear is that actually foundational to knowing peace is actually knowing that God has spoken clearly to you. That there's a God who speaks out his word, and if you don't, hear from God, then you'll listen to any other number of voices. But in fact, God has spoken out and so know his word. Listen to him. In fact, you won't know the peace that the spirit of God who dwells in you brings unless you possess God's word. Let's see if that's true. You remember from last week that Jesus says, it's good that I'm going because I'm going to send my spirit and my spirit's going to do a number of things. Now, one of the things that he does, we discover in verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, all of this I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the advocate or the paraclete, the one who's going to come alongside, the helper, and now he names him the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, what will he do? Well, for the 11 disciples that are there in front of Jesus, Jesus says, this is what he'll do. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said to you. The disciples have spent three years in close proximity to God as he's walked about and taught. They've seen all this and he's explained things, but no one hit the record button. And Jesus says, that's fine. Because when I go, the Holy Spirit will come and he's going to remind you of everything. And it will be your task then 
to take what you've been reminded and record it. He will teach you all things. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to do exactly that. And and so what you discover is that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, will aid their memory, give them supernatural understanding in order to write God's Word and capture it, not just for themselves, but for future generations like us. It's why we have it. In fact, it's exactly the same thing that happens with the Old Testament. The New Testament says that about the Old Testament, in fact. You probably know this already. But there's a time when Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, speaks about all of the scriptures that they have. And by that, he's talking about the Old Testament. And he says, all scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be completely equipped for every good work. What Paul's picking up on is this idea that you find elsewhere, that in fact, the way that God brought his word forth was by breathing it out into people. Now, of course, when you hear that immediately, we're actually meant to think about, well, that's how actually he brought life to us. That when he formed humanity, his breath brought life to Adam, breathed out, and life comes. And of course, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Without breath, there is no life. But here you discover that without breath, there is no word, speech. That's as true for God as it is for us. You know that, don't you? You can't form a word without your breath. Try and say something without breathing it out. Restrict your breath and communicate. Well, you can't. And what God reveals is actually that's the way that he works. In fact, that as he breathes out his breath, that is what carries forth his word. But but of course, here's the really cool thing. In Hebrew, the word for breath and the word for spirit, it's exactly the same word, the word ruach, and the word for wind as well. That God breathes out his word, this life-giving breath. And because of that, the Old Testament is given. Peter actually picks up on this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For prophecy was never produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so you have this God who communicates by his word, his breathed out spirit, and it breathes out and you have these scriptures. And the same thing that happened for the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, that will happen in the New Testament. In this new arrangement that I have, these that are gathered here, the apostles before him, you will receive the spirit and he will do this great work, this breathed out breath of God, his spirit will teach you all things and remind you everything that I have said to you. And that's an astonishing thought, isn't it? That God the Father, in his provision that the world might know him and know about him and ultimately know where true life and hope and peace is found, it comes because the Holy Spirit is at work in the apostles to write God's word. And we have it. It's a function of the Holy Spirit's work to do that 
in those first hearers of Jesus' message. I wonder if you, you appreciate that. That there's life-giving breath that God has breathed out and, and it's been recorded for us. And if we're to have the type of peace that Jesus has in mind for his followers, it's established by the Holy Spirit who breathes life and peace into us as we partake the word or the breath that's found in scriptures, in the scriptures. It's like oxygen. And so imagine coming to oxygen, kind of, oh, I don't really want it. No, 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 I don't need that today. Jesus is saying, no, no, you need that. It's why God's word and reading it and knowing it is so vital that our minds might breathe in the breath of God as we read his word. But I wonder, do we think of God's word like that? Like oxygen to us? Life-giving? Peace-giving? Because it's in God's word that we learn what Jesus has said of God, of himself, of us, of life, of how it's to be lived and understood. And just in a very similar way, that for the apostles, the spirit brings God's word to mind. It brings it to our mind too, doesn't it? The Spirit at work as we read through His Word, breathing life into us. And His Word comes as we read it and think about it, meditate upon it, and it competes often with other things that are vying for our attention. Here's the one who speaks out, breathes out His Word, and it's true truth that's coming. And that's combating all the other voices. Maybe the voice in my own head, my inner monologue that wants to say other things about reality and about... And here it is, God's Word, intersecting that, combating that. Or the cultural narrative that's yapping away and telling you how to set your values or where your priorities ought to lie or what's important, this, that. And here is God's Word and His Spirit. Breathing life into us that we might experience peace Resting not on our opinions or on that philosophy, but on the very word of God, that it's peace-giving. One of the blokes in the room that night is Peter, and later on when he writes a letter, he writes to Peter, and in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied in you. Let it get bigger and bigger in you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. As you grow in your understanding of him, then you should have more and ever increasing peace. As you know more of what he's like and as his word takes root in your life. And I suspect that for many, if not all, hopefully all of us, you've experienced that. That there's been some time of some conflicted experience where where you're reaching out for understanding and something from God's word reaches out and is exactly the answer. That God's word and his spirit intersect and you say, yes, that is true. Because the other thing that Jesus wants his disciples to know is that this peace that is offered abundantly from him is not at all like the peace that the world offers. Look at verse 27. This peace that I leave with you, my peace that I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. So don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. See, here's Jesus in that scene about to be crucified. But before that, picture him. He's 
in the hours leading up to the cross. And yet he has this perfect peace. Soon he'll be flogged, beard ripped, spat upon. He'll be convicted. He'll be nailed up and he'll, and yet at this point he knows all that comes before him. And he says, I've got a peace that I want to give to you. And when you think about the kind of peace that we have, human peace, if you like, it's so unlike that, isn't it? I mean, the thought of that would terrify any of us. But if you went and sought for peace, maybe you did it this afternoon, you thought, I'm just going to have a little nap, or I'm going to go for a drive, or I'm just going to lay out on the back deck for a little while. I don't know what you do to find peace, right? But it can be interrupted so quickly, can't it? Go out for that afternoon drive, you think how peaceful this is, just take some idiot to come in front of you, and all of a sudden the peace is all gone. It's just evaporated in a moment. It's so situationally dependent. The phone will ring, someone nap, whatever it is. Ah! That, that's true just on a personal level, isn't it? The things that will interrupt and invade our peace. And then you think it on a bigger level, a world level for peace. You've just been nominated, you know. I'm super excited, I'm going to be Miss World or whatever it is. And I stand up, I give my speech and I say, I want world peace. And what am I hoping for? Well, whatever I'm hoping for, I know it can't last. It never has. Not for all the empires that ever existed. The great hope at the time that Jesus is about is the Pax Ramona, the peace of Rome. Did it last? Peace, the peace that the empire of Rome established? No. And every empire afterwards? No. It never lasts. But here's this peace that Jesus offers, and he's saying it's not like the world's peace that, that can evaporate so quickly. God's peace is fixed and it's eternally stable, no matter what the circumstances. So later on in chapter 16, we're still in the upper room discourse, and Jesus says this in verse 33, I've said to you all these things, that in me that you may have peace. In the world you'll have trouble or tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. What's Jesus saying? Not that peace will be brought because there's an eradication of all conflict. and all. No, 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 you're going to have that. But the peace that God is giving stays with you, even though you find yourself in the midst of turmoil and trouble. And when you hear that, you think, well, that doesn't make sense. The peace that Jesus brings from a human perspective makes no sense at all. How could, how could Jesus even have, have peace just hours before the cross? How does he have peace as he's sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? It's because his peace comes from his direct connection and the relationship that he has with his Father. And he knows this, that as long as he's in relationship with the Father and that that's intact, so is his peace. And he wants his disciples to know that that equation is as true for him as, it, as for us as it is for him. As long as our relationship to the Son exists, so does our peace. Back in chapter 10, when Jesus has been talking about being a shepherd, he said, listen, when I've got you, I've got you. I'm a good shepherd and I don't lose any. Our trials, they'll come. And they'll go. But our connection to the Son is permanent. And because of that, so is your peace. You do know that. Don't you? Take, the, take the wide-angled lens and see that. So Paul, in Philippians, perhaps a very familiar passage, commands people to rejoice. He says, rejoice in the Lord. You go, well, not today. Maybe tomorrow, but not, not today. No, no, I'll tell you again. Rejoice. 
And let your gentleness be known to all. Oh, well, I'm getting pretty hot into the collar right now. No, no, no. Let your gentleness or your reasonableness be known to all because the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's it's incredible, isn't it? It does surpass our understanding. In the midst of whatever the trouble is, where you're seeking for peace, where you see things conflicted or out of what they ought to be in brokenness, he's saying, remember that there's a peace that comes. Take those things, the anxiety, take the situation, know that the Lord is at hand and give it into his hand. Bring your prayers and your supplications and be thankful because here is a God who will hear your requests. But know this, that the peace of God surpasses all understanding and actually would guard your heart and your mind. It's a great reversal, isn't it? He's saying, the peace that I give is not like the world's peace that disappears. In fact, the peace that I give is far broader and bigger. It will even sustain you in the midst of trials and tribulations. I preached this message this morning at nine o'clock and a gentleman from the nine o'clock service by the name of Graham Lawrence came and spoke to me afterwards and I've asked if I can tell him tell uh, his reflections on this uh, tonight. And he just said, I just want to tell you just something that happened to me and just Remind, you reminded me of it as you were speaking this morning. Graham Lawrence has a profoundly disabled daughter. And he came to faith uh, later in his life, late in his life. And um, he was at a spiritual retreat. They'd broken into small groups. He was with people he'd never met before. And they asked the people in the small groups just to share something they wanted to ask God for. And as it went around this little circle, Graham shared and he said, I want my daughter to be perfect. And a lady that he'd never met looked him in the eyes and said, she is perfect. Took Graham aback. He's thinking, no, no, she's not. You don't know her, but have I I misunderstood? Have I not seen her right? I'm asking that God might make her perfect. She has a dysfunctional mind. She has a dysfunctional body. She's constantly... Confined? And this lady says, she's perfect. And then he said it was instantaneous. He started to reflect on his daughter and thought, she's never complained, not once. She's never shown any malice, not to anyone. She loves unconditionally. She's perfect. And he said, it it, it was as if I'd only seen on this physical plane. But to pull back, and now he said, I wake up every morning and she's my joy. She reframes my world. It's a peace that transcends understanding, doesn't it? It, it? It's not like the world's peace. It's completely different. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, to us, is that he doesn't create peace for us by eradicating the struggles and the problems. 
but he lets us in on a peace that he has that's based on his relationship with the Father, that's guaranteed because of, sorry, that's guaranteed relationship that he has with the Father, that invites us into that same relationship because of his obedience to go to the cross and die, proved victorious by his resurrection. And he's completed the mission. And he's invited us to experience this peace that he knows with his father that we now have back in relationship with him. An ultimate peace. Shalom, shalom. Perfect peace. And I wonder in your mind if you think, well, do I have that kind of peace? Not at the moment or not until that happens. but, but, But the truth of this is to say, irrespective of circumstance, To know Christ is to receive a perspective on this world that allows you to have that kind of peace. It's the old song, with Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm. Or when the darkness closes in, Lord, still will I say, blessed be your name when you give or take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord because Jesus then moves on and he says, listen, I want you also to know that the peace that, that comes from me focuses on, on, on who God is and his sovereignty and not on, on this world, but in fact, that bigger scale, the world to come. Notice verse 28. You've heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. And if you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe And you see in these verses the great desire that the Son has to finish his mission, to go to the cross and to be reunited to the Father. The Father has set a mission. And Christ dying on the cross fulfills that mission. And Jesus is ready because he knows that this is what it's going to take for him to complete the mission, to save God's people, to deal with the sin that would separate us the the conflict that we have between us and God, the thing that brings peace between us and God, he's got to do that. And once he does that, the mission is done and he's reunited with the Father. I noticed this week on one of the streaming services online that Catch-22 has been made into a series. I read the novel Catch-22 when I was back at school and it had a profound effect on me. And at the heart of that story... He's a character who just wants to get home. He wants to complete his bombing runs so that he can get out of there. Mission done, completed. But if you've ever read that story, you know it's impossible. Because as soon as he gets close to the number, the number of missions just extends and extends and extends. It's the catch-22. It just keeps going around and around. It's a circle that never ends. And you're sorry and cannot get free from it. And then he hits upon other ideas. He'll plead insanity and then he'll be able to go home. But then in order to plead insanity, you've got to declare yourself to be insane. But if you can declare yourself to be insane, you're obviously not insane. And so you've got to stick around. Around and around it goes. You can never finish the job. There's no peace for Yossarian. It's the peace that the world gives. It's elusive and it disappears. But notice here, that's so unlike the peace that Jesus understands. He has an obedience to the Father's mission. And once it's over, he returns to the Father, mission completed. And he is rejoicing. If you knew me, you'd love the fa- You'd be glad that I'm going. The Father's greater than I and I return to him. I go home and to be at peace, the battle is over. 
And so then notice that Jesus, his peace and his joy, it's so connected to his relationship to God the Father. And so as Jesus is nearing, nearer, getting nearer and nearer to the Father, his joy and his peace is increasing. And that same equation is as true for him as it is for us. Believers, the followers of Jesus, our peace is in direct proportion to our closeness with God. Far away from him, you'll feel all the conflictedness. You'll look for other ways to find peace and fill your life with those things that will abate the conflicts or steady the things. And when you think about it, that's actually at the heart of what sin is. Sin is the promise that happiness and peace might come to us by other means. But it lies to us. It's, it's deceptive. Real happiness and peace comes from being in close proximity to God not in a strained relationship with him that sin brings about. And Jesus says, I'm going to establish peace by dying. I'll be reunited with the Father and I will send out my spirit who will speak out and remind you of all the things that I've said and he will be with you and you will know peace. Because peace really, truly comes when we understand who is ultimately in control of all things. Notice verse 29. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe. I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world, it's a reference to the devil, that Satan is coming. But he has no hold over me or he has no claim on me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus wants his disciples to know that it's going to look like Satan's winning. Judas's betrayal, the victory, the death of God on the cross. But Jesus is saying God is in control of all these events, that the cross is God's eternal plan. It's the way that will bring sinners back to himself and back into peace. And Jesus wants his people to know that the reason he can tell them about these events beforehand And the reason that they come to pass is because he is God. And not only does he know the future, but he literally speaks them into being. Uh, it, It might look like Satan is in charge. The ruler of this world is coming. But know that he ruled this world according to sin and deception. And Jesus says to his followers, he has no claim on me. I'm without sin. I'll go to death bearing your sin but my perfect righteousness will see me resurrected alive again. I am the one in control and the one who has the power. And so he says, because of that, it's all a picture of obedience, of loving obedience to the Father. And he's willing. Notice how willing he is at the very end of this passage. Come now, let us leave, rise, let us go from here. Let's do it. Let's embrace my Father's will. Even though it means my death on the cross for you, I want you to see that I'm establishing peace, but I also want you to see that I've got a peace that no one else can give you. My peace, I will leave with you. Not as the world gives. So don't let your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. To that room that night and to us, Jesus is saying, listen, your understanding of peace Your settledness and confidence actually comes from resting in God's sovereignty. It's a peace that comes 
only because Jesus gives it. It's the end result of the Holy Spirit's work in our life to give that deep and lasting abiding peace, reminding us that God now isn't far off but dwells with us and in us. Unlike worldly peace, which you can think of as the absence of conflict, this peace is the confident assurance in any circumstance that God is still on the throne. And so with that kind of peace, we need not fear our past or things that are happening right now or the worries of tomorrow. And if our life is full of stress, it's an invitation to realise that God's Holy Spirit can dwell in us and that we could be in step with Him. That one of the fruits that the Holy Spirit might cultivate in us is peace. And if we find ourselves lacking Christ's peace then maybe a good question to ask is, am I breathing in that life-giving word? Because Jesus says that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in his name, will teach us all things and bring to our remembrances all that he has said, that he wants to communicate to you. But that won't happen if you've taken the oxygen away. That's why the discipline of coming to his word and reading it and knowing it allows for the spirit to be at work recalling it to our minds. Am I living my life, though, focused on this world and the peace that this world offers or on people's opinions Or am I seeking to draw closer to God all the time, knowing that my proximity to him increases my peace and my joy, knowing his mission and his rule and his plan? Jesus said in verse 28, you heard that I'm going away, I'll come to you. If you loved me, you'd rejoice because I'm going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. He wants to be close to you. Do you realise who really is in charge of this world, who's sovereign over all things and in charge of all circumstances? In verse 29, Jesus says, I've told you all this before it takes place, so that when it does, you may believe. Do the troubles and the conflicts and the strife and the lack of peace in this world eat away at your belief? Jesus says, that ought not be the case. I told you beforehand. Here's the peace that I'm offering. I'm leaving you my peace And I'm leaving you the Holy Spirit, that he might dwell in you, bearing testimony to me being the one who has brought peace between humanity and God the Father. That we might know the presence of peace and the work of the Spirit daily is Jesus' prayer for his disciples that night and for us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want often to be free from things that would trouble. We want brokenness to be eradicated. 
We want things that separated to be mended. And what we discover is that that is exactly what you have done. By sending your son and by his willingness to go to the cross. Lord, that we ought to be glad like those disciples in that room that Jesus is returning to the Father and going to the cross. That, Lord, our lack of peace with you has been dealt with once and for all when you died in our place. And that peace has been established and it never gets removed. So powerful is your death in our place. And so, Heavenly Father, would you allow that understanding and the understanding that you are one who reigns and rules now, that we follow in the footsteps of a risen Saviour who is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and in control. And, and so, Lord, would you help us understand the unsettled things of this life, the troubles of this world, Lord, where we haven't got peace? Could we see it through the lens that you would have us see it? Lord, would your word be active within us, that we'd seek to understand it and to know it, that your Holy Spirit might be illuminating the truth of it to us. And Lord, that we might walk in the way of perfect peace. And so, Lord, would you come and minister to us and our troubled hearts, that we might know that in that true and ultimate sense, we have, because of Christ's death and resurrection, peace with you. And for this we give you thanks and praise. Amen.